0: Windsor, Windsor, Ascot, Ascot Maidenhead, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Bracknell Wokingham, Wokingham, Henley, Henley Reading.
1: Okay, Ta-da. The voice, River Radio, of the Thames Valley. Food,
0: cause I wanna eat stop, cause I- Welcome to this show, Let's Do Lunch, with me, Jenny Tishi. I'm a registered nutritionist, I'm an absolute foodie and author of several cookbooks, I am really excited today to be joined by Rose Grimond, who is the founder of the Nettlebed Creamery in Oxfordshire. So really, really local, really not far at all. Um, Although this was founded in 2015, Rose has actually been using the organic milk that's been produced by her grandfather's farm, which is only about two miles down the road in Bix, that's B-I-X, also the name of one of the fantastic cheeses available at Nettlebed Creamery. And that farm has been going since the 1950s so there's quite a, a background and a pedigree here i'd love to find out more hi rose how are you doing
2: very well thank you jenny how are you yeah i'm
0: good thank you the sun is shining all is well with the world as far as i'm concerned it's cold but i love it that way um so uh, rose i know that you're really passionate about regenerative farming and i know it's something that the listeners of this show would love to find out more about now My knowledge as a nutritionist is limited, I'm sure. Um, And I'm sure as someone that is passionate about it and practices regenerative farming, it is something that you could explain probably better. Now, the phrase that I use, nourishing the soil that nourishes us, it really resonates with me. But I'm sure you can shed more light. I'm sure you can explain more about what regenerative farming is.
2: I think it's a really interesting topic for our day, especially in the context of... um the debate around carbon and the recent COP, there, there are two schools of thought. Oh, gosh, I'm going to get this wrong in some respects. You're going to have to forgive me. But one is to get from the land as much as we can mm-hmm. um, by using as much manipulation um, that we have to hand, largely fertilizers, NPK, And in order to make fertilizers, we need fossil fuels and huge amounts of chemical engineering Mm-hmm. And doing so, we get a, a, a great yield from, from the land, but it's short-lived, and um, and eventually we will take everything out of the land without putting it back. As you say, that's it's the opposite of nourishing the soil. It's it's really um, s- squeezing it for all it's worth. For much mm. better phrase, um, regenerative farming is where you work with the cycles that nature has <laughs> come up with herself, and. You work in harmony and sympathy and you put back into the soil what you take out and you really take your lead from the way that nature would like to do it. And organic farming is arguably regenerative farming. Some people say it isn't, some people say it is. Regen farming is, is now such a sort of well-worn phrase and it gets banded about quite a lot, but I think it can only be for the better. It uh, really helps you understand in the debate of what some people call plant-based eating, well, really, everything is plant-based, essentially. Yeah. Um, the The idea that you can you can actually farm responsibly with ruminants, with animals, with the the right fauna and flora that suits that particular geographical farm is I think, critical to understanding how we should grow our food, and critical to where we should buy our food from and who we should buy
0: our food from. Do you know, it's really interesting that you say that and you speak of the flora and fauna that exist within an area. Uh, my first degree is actually geography, and it's obviously second in nutrition, but I find it absolutely fascinating that we can go to many other countries in the world where there are... Let's just take France and let's just take cheese, for example. But each region has its own particular cheeses and their own particular form and flavor, and the way in which they're presented differs. And yet, we sort of don't think in that way in this country. And yet, it must relate to where the animals that are grazing are grazing, you know, what they're grazing on, what's available to them in their own environment you're based in oxfordshire did you choose to be based there because of the you know, your connection to the area or were you looking specifically for the flora and fauna of that area to provide a particular outcome as far as your cheeses are concerned
2: i think there are a lot of interesting points in that <laughs> excuse me i think that the uh britain has had a wonderful renaissance i think really since the early noughties about understanding the different regional differences within our country um our country um there's actually very few parts of the country largely on the east side of england where you can grow crops in the way that we would in the most efficient way meanwhile you're not going to get a great crop of spring barley up in welsh mountainside and back before we had the tools at our, to hand, you had to put sheep on a hill because they're the only thing that's going to survive and you had to grow spring barley in Lincolnshire because that was the only place you could do it. And we've managed to adapt tools so that we can actually do things in different places but I don't think it's really been to our benefit and I think that understanding is returning. It's returning again in the debate of regenerative farming, it's returning in the, de- in the with the debate of rewilding, it's returning in the debate of where um, where we can best use what the land, how the land wants to be used in the way that it wants to be used, if that makes sense. And um, in answer to your question, um, why did I, I, I guess, why did I start making cheese in Oxfordshire? Um, as you said in your introduction, the, the farm has been in the family for a long time. Um, it was, in fact, my great, great, great somebody, or grandfather, <laughs> who bought it in 1901, and then we started dairy farming in, in the 50s, as you point out. We, um, we converted to organic farming in 2001, And I moved out of London where I've been working in a different food company. And I said, well, we have this beautiful milk and it's just being shipped off and being lost in the wholesale market. And really, it'd be really lovely to reflect the terroir, as wine and cheese people say, of the countryside around us in Southeast Oxfordshire and have all of that wonderful microbes that are in the soil and all of the wonderful grazing and all of the, the, the very particular parts of the ecosystem around here reflected in a cheese. And really it's one of the best things about cheese is, is you can't really manipulate it too much. It is what it is. And in that way it really does reflect where it's made.
0: Yeah, absolutely love that. And I having tasted your cheeses, the three cheeses um, that are available from Nettlebell Creamery, I can tell they all are quite different, but they are, um, to me, very specific. And I've never really tasted things exactly like them anywhere else, despite absolutely loving cheese. Um, So that's really interesting. So just going back to regenerative farming... How does it relate in terms of the practices that you use at a nettlebed creamery? Now, obviously, you're using the milk from your grandfather's farm. Is that where the practices are in place there?
2: Yes, they are. That's where it, that's where it all starts. It starts with, um, with the soil and into the grazing, then to the cows. And the cows, because they are um, kept to organic standards, as, um, as determined by the Soil Association, they are kept to the highest animal welfare and that really matters to us. They're very happy, very healthy cows and in fact there's nothing more relaxing meditative, zen than spending time with them uh, in their happy population as they scratch each other's backs and make their peculiar calming noises. Um, And then yes, their milk. So the milk then comes to us at the creamery and we then go through the peculiar process of cheesemaking and out it comes as cheese. But yes, it does all start with a farm, and, um, and we're very proud of our farming practices.
1: Yeah,
0: and the the cheese, if anybody's interested, go and have a look on, it's your Instagram page, isn't it? You've got a video that was created by your head cheese maker. It is well worth a watch. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, whether you're somebody that understands the process or not just the way in which you guys make it is really interesting so farming is obviously in your family um your grandfather started the dairy farm in the 50s did you grow up in around a farm or is this something that's sort of you know now part of your life i mean you're living a a, a rural uh in a, in a beautiful place uh, right now but is this something that you connected with as a child or is this new to you
2: Um, I actually largely grew up in London, but the farm was in my family. My uncle was running it at the time and given half a chance, we would be here at every moment we had. Uh, then it was when I was pregnant with my first child and my husband is a writer and we thought that our time in London had come to an end Mm -hmm. and why not move back? And it was a wonderful decision. And I haven't
0: looked back since. Do you know, that's the thing, isn't it? I think when you go through a different life stage, um, you do start to ask questions about where is best. So for your children, this is now home, uh, the beautiful Oxfordshire countryside. Lucky children. (laughs) So what about your childhood food memories? What sort of foods do you remember eating? And what did you connect with as a child? Um, I
2: always enjoy when I read a cookbook. I wasn't quite often the introductions. More interesting in the recipes, and there are so many um, chefs who say, you know, I was at my mother's, tugging my mother's apron strings when I learned how to do my first white sauce or whatever it is. Um, and I think that I've really got interested in cooking by watching Ready, Steady, Cook, and <laughs> it was coming home from school and putting on BBC Two, and it just triggered something. And then me and my friend would watch it together and um, remark on what looked delicious and what looked absolutely revolting and then we just started cooking it so we just started cooking for fun and that was really our early 20s so um, my childhood memories are um, I don't want to do, my mother a disservice she was a fab- fabulous cook my, mother, my father came so he could make a Victoria sponge but no one's yet seen it um, but yeah, it was, it, was that, it was that wonderful time you know, late 90s, early noughties and the interest in food in this country in my mind, just exploded and I don't think it's
0: ever stopped. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think uh, I might be slightly older than you, but I think there's certainly... That- connection with I mean I'm one of seven so you know real food was always going to be seven. one of seven the youngest of seven so real food was always wow. going to be on the menu um, full-time working mother but it was always important to us that we would sit together if we could and, and eat together but certainly it was home-cooked food but it does really I think influence your decisions as you grow um, and I love the fact that actually despite that you, you connected most with the Ready steady cook which I think is a fantastic concept because actually we do find ourselves I think more you you know, if we think about regenerative farming and we think about as much as we can do for our environment is learning how to cook things from what we have left over and actually that's a perfect concept isn't it to connect with ready steady cook so prior to uh, the nettleberg creamery you ran another food business called orkney rose from borough market how have you found the transition to running your own creamery
2: um i when I, I, mean, I saw this question, I thought this is a really good question They're very, very different businesses. Orkney Rose uh, founded in two thousand five or something. And um, the premise was to was to try and collect as many local producers as possible in the Orkney Islands and consolidate their produce in, in port itself. and import um, south. And and then I had a stall at borough market and I had a van in London, and I'd go around. Delivering Diver Court scallops to places like Shea Bruce and the Ledbury. And it was was really fun. It was really different. And it was sort of fleet of foot. And it just was really me in a van. And now it's entirely different. Now I have a cheese factory. And it is highly engineered. It is very static. It is filled with hardworking people. And we have a rule that we all do no deliveries. So, yeah, I think I've gone from being a, a sort of sales agent and sort of pounding the streets to being someone who's actually very specifically linked in one, to one place.
0: Interesting. Uh, Orkney, the relation there, you were talking earlier on about the terroir and foods that are specific to an area. What was, I mean, other than Diver Court scallops, I'm interested, what else was particular to Orkney that was well-received um, in the London market? That's a,
2: good, that's a good question because of, because it of the importing and exporting difficulties just by virtue of that patch of water between Orkney and Scotland. Um, It's it's remarkably self-sufficient as an archipelago. So there are a number of small acreage farms, which is not what you get down here in the South. Mm. And as a result, you have a lot of superb rare breed pork and heather grazed lamb and smoked mackerel and dive caught scallops that I mentioned and sea urchins and wonderful, wonderful Aberdeen Angus beef, best beef I've ever eaten. Wow. And it's um, it does re- reflect the terroir of Orkney, me, which is sort of battered by maritime winds and as such has really high and very peculiar nutrients in its grazing and that's reflected through the food. It's all, oh, can't you yeah, see, yeah, it all comes back to... It does come out, doesn't right it? Mm. It really does, actually,
0: yeah. I, as a nutritionist, I think of food as a messenger, but the food itself is a messenger of what's in the land that it came from. I loved your initial statement about everything is plant-based. I mean, at the very beginning, everything is plant-based and the message then travels through till the end of the food chain where we're consuming the product. I think that's absolutely wonderful. So you've gone from being the person, the salesperson at the end of the process to being the production almost at the, the beginning of the process what are the biggest differences would you say between those two roles I mean I'm sure the challenge of setting up your own creamery was a big one <laughs> but what, yes. what would you say the biggest differences <laughs> between those two roles has been for you
2: um, they uh, yes awesome, very good. so um, they used to say back when I was representing farmers in Orkney that a farmer will sweat Um, and bleed for the welfare of its animals while they're on the farm. But as soon as that animal has left the farm gate, they they no longer consider that animal their problem or of their concern. And farmers traditionally haven't had great marketing uh, strategies or been interested in it really. And that's what I hope to bring to those, those businesses in Orkney. And then going into being a processor and a producer, that marketing experience is actually critical to to the business, and it's um, and you're right it's sort of backwards most people would start to produce something and then decide that it needs a marketing or strategy, but in fact've got in order to get that top line that sale you've actually got to be sales focused and understand something about how to make that revenue start and continue but also understanding Uh, the feedback yes it's been backwards yeah you get getting the feedback from your consumer
0: having already an understanding of the consumer's requirements i think is absolutely the point to start at, is isn't it but you were Uh, that way you know facing so that's a that's a good way to be facing
2: and you must know this um being a nutritionist and, and with your wonderful books that you can't make food be anything other than what it is, and that's one of the things I like most about it. it doesn't, you know, you can not sort of dress it up in a ribbon, you can't sort of sprinkle it with I don't know glitter, and sort of tell someone it's actually better than it is. It, it it's just it's so visceral. It's so um, there's an authenticity about food that you listen to someone when they say no, I think this is too this this is disgusting, and it feeds back, and you make it better and better and better, and yeah. that's that learning curve, which is sort of fun and it can be a bit white knuckle but is is part of the glory, I think, of being in the food business.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also I think people do connect with food. It is what it is. They connect with it on a taste level, but there's so much more, so much deeper than that. They do connect with the story of the food, which is why I'd like to delve a little bit deeper with you. I'd love to find out as well uh, what a typical day in your life looks like. So let's just take a brief pause and then we'll come back and find out more.
1: Windsor, Windsor. Ascot, Ascot. Maidenhead, Maidenhead. Bracknell, Bracknell. Wokingham, Wokingham. Henley, Henley. Reading, Reading. Okay, ta the Voice, River Radio, of the Thames Valley.
0: Welcome back to this show. Let's do lunch with me, Jenny Tishy. This is a show all about food and nutrition. I'm a registered nutritionist, but also the absolute foodie and author of five cookery books. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Rose Grimont, who is the founder of Nettlebed Cream which is just down the road in Oxfordshire. I have had the pleasure of tasting, well, more than cheeses, in fact, from the creamery, including milk and kefir and butter. And I'm very excited to ask Rose a little bit more about uh, what your day entails. So what is a typical day as the owner, founder of the Nettleberg Creamery?
2: Uh, it's, I, think, I think my day has improved. It used to be <laughs> that I was doing, uh, doing it all, which meant getting up very early and driving the van to the milking parlour and getting the first morning's milk at 5.15. So um, luckily I no longer do that. And uh, now the day starts, and I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, it's the um, trying to lever the children out of the house, get them to where they need to be with the right stuff, and then um, into work. The cheesemakers, they turn up quite early at about 7, and the the process starts, and we make cheese four or five times a week. You bring the milk into the building, and then the cheese-making process um, gets underway. But as well as that, there's all the concomitant parts of che- cheese-making. There's a, a fabulous packing team, and they are as integral as the cheese-makers. And there's a whole process of affinage, which actually in France they separate, and they have particular affineurs who take the cheese when it's very young, and they go and age it in particular conditions. And um, it's such a, a crucial part of cheese-making. And then, um, and then we also have another cafe on site, which is called the Cheese Shed, and that pick, that opens at eight thirty. So the morning is busy and starts, and everyone, and then we we get all of our systems up and running. And then um, everyone works really hard. My job these days is largely dealing with problems. <laughs> uh, <laughs> In summary, so I, yeah, I'm drinking a lot of coffee and. Good. Um, <laughs> And, and like all small businesses, you, you, you have to have a finger in every pie. So um, from, uh, you know, fixing machinery to working out a marketing thing to ordering new labels, um, it's um, no two days are the same. I think that's... It is. Um, and then and then massively... Yeah, it's it, it ends <laughs> it's back to the chaos of home so it's not like it, um unlike those jobs where you can actually then bring it home and carry on and do another two or three hours at home luckily you can't bring cheese making home so um when the day is done the day is done
0: yeah that uh, that's actually a really uh that's a big bonus as far as a role is concerned that you can't carry on once you're at home you can concentrate on the chaos that uh, children bring i'm sure um so I obviously I've mentioned the, the three cheeses uh, that you make. I would love you to share uh, with, your, with our listeners what your cheeses are, why you've chosen to make them, um, and you know perhaps how one should eat them.
2: They say it takes 10 years to perfect a cheese, and I think they're absolutely right.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, we started making a cheese which was named after the church next to the creamery called St Bartholomew, and it proved to be a very difficult thing to do lots and lots of problems and slowly that cheese has evolved into what we um now make which is a semi-hard six-month aged cheese called witheridge and that is aged in hay um but being six months it has um it's not great for cash flow and so one day looking out of my office window looking at a beautiful view i have to say we have from the office um, I was struck by the similarities that we have in this part of South Oxfordshire with Champagne Country, uh, which is where they're growing a lot of vines around, around us and making a lot of wonderful sparkling wines. And in Champagne Country, their cheese that is particular to to that area of France is a Chaos, which is a triple cream white rind cheese. And I thought, let's make one of them because I always liked them. You can't get a good one over here. And so started the evolution of what became our second cheese, which is called Bix. Mm-hmm. And um, it does actually go very well with a sparkling wine. And then somewhere along the line, I thought it would be a good idea to do a third cheese, which might been a mistake. Um, <laughs> you don't want to make too many. And this one we designed to be somewhere between a Reblichant, telegio Pornovec. It's a washed rind cheese, and we're really looking for some umami flavors and mm. some sort of complexities which go into that brothy kind of part of the, the the palate and that we um started in that cheese is called highmore so we have three cheese and i said well that's plenty and if you make too many you start to sort of um, compromise the quality except then we decided. It'd be really good to have butter because butter's delicious and butter's one of the best things in the world. So then we started making cultured butter. And then we've always been interested in the microbiome and the importance of getting all of the, and seeing what we can do to help that, uh, the microflora in the gut. And so we'd been making kefir for a while and I thought, well, we may as well bring that to market. So we started bottling kefir. And then we thought, well, if we're doing this, why don't we make some ice cream? And so that, now we make ice cream in the summer months. And and then, because the triple cream cheese involves adding cream, as the, the description would suggest, we make cream. And then we thought, well, we may as well sell that. And then cream has a byproduct of semi-skimmed milk. And then we thought, well, what do you make with semi-skimmed milk? Well, parmesan. So we actually have a few parmesan-style cheeses uh, just sitting quietly in the back of an aging room, getting older and better. Um, so although we make three cheeses, it turns out that we actually make quite a lot of other things too and it's really testament to um, a, a fantastic head of production I think you were talking about earlier on Instagram his Michael Patrick and he makes these things look easy in there, and they're really not but he is brilliant at his job
0: but it also shows that nothing is going to waste and again <laughs> That is really important. In this day and age, I think people don't realise, you know, it it seems so obvious, doesn't it, that in many other areas of of our food, what we consume and what we don't consume, we sort of just forget about what we don't consume. But actually, when you're looking at this, everything is going to be consumed, whether it's the cream, whether it's the semi-skim milk, whether it's the um, kefir. I, I mean, I love the idea that you've created so many different products. From you know, from from the creamery, from you know, one source really. So, is there a limit? Do you think to the number of cheeses with the parmesan? Um, do you think that will be the the limit, or, or uh, do you not want to say at this point because no, you leave I the door def- open? I
2: think I, I want to have a steadfast yes. We will make no more cheeses. But okay. I wouldn't be surprised if Patrick one day brings, brings up a sort of burrata style cheese to the office and says, "Look what I made." Um, ah, yes. he's a he's a sort of constant questing experimenter. And um, But the easy thing to do is to make 10 cheeses not, not very well. They're mm-hmm. so particular and peculiar, they need a lot of care and love and um, attention. The more attention you give them, the best they get. So um, I wouldn't want to start bringing in lots of different ones, which we were, would neglect. And uh, no, three is plenty. Three is enough.
0: Three, three is enough. Um, I, well, I personally, I love them each, but uh, I'd love to know what your favourite is.
2: Um, at the moment, it's Witheridge because it is tasting absolutely wonderful. Mm. It, um, we're eating stuff which is six months old. So, uh, well, actually, the, the last mate was June last year, and maybe, maybe it was the, maybe it was the grass the cows were eating in June last year. But it's really tasting absolutely fabulous.
0: Interesting. I wonder whether there was anything to do with the partic- you know, the climate at that time. And uh, yeah, like you exactly. say, it can really affect, can't it, the, the taste of the, the cheese, depending on what the cows were feeding on. Um, and how, without coining a phrase too, obviously, um, but how do you eat yours? <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, well, actually, because I eat so much at work, because we're tasting all the time, I'm always drinking coffee and tasting cheese. And that's not a really good way to eat cheese. And then by the time it comes around to a Saturday night, I've got some friends over And we're eating cheese. It's sort of sometimes the last thing I want to see. But um, when we're when we're cheese tasting, at you know we're grading our cheeses. You try to give the plainest um, bedfellows. So uh, if you're a deep professional, do it with them a bit of dry sourdough um, or Jacobs crackers. But at home, I just chuck cheese into anything. I quite often use it as seasoning. So um, any dish is always helped. Well, not always, but. Um, by lobbing a bit of cheese into it and um, and actually everyone who we work with it's always coming back wonderful experiments and new dishes that they did on the weekend and said like, oh you know I just put bits into these risotto balls and actually it sort of was fabulous and so we're sort of um, it's never ending really what you
0: can do with cheese. Yeah, I, I think that's brilliant, actually, a really good thing to think about. We often think of having cheese or a cheese plate or, you know, consuming it as a course, but actually using it in your cooking and adding that wonderful flavour, umami, et cetera, to a dish. That was good, but it's made even better by that addition. So um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the cheese shed. You have mentioned it. I know I can vouch having visited um, fairly recently and hopefully again soon um, for your Highmore cheese toasty, which is just so ridiculously tasty. Um, how did the cheese shed come about? I think it's brilliant. <laughs> and What made you select the cheese toasty as the signature dish?
2: Um, the cheese, taste, the cheese shed came about because, um, well, it was trying to solve two problems we had. Actually, three. One was that we had from the building, from the creamery, what we call a hatch, which is basically a window where you could go and buy cheese directly. Uh, and that's quite common in France that you could buy from your fromageur. And uh, and people liked it. And they would come. And in fact, we had a packing team and they would be disturbed because they'd chat to the lovely customers but it got popular to the extent where like, well, we really should have someone manning this so, it, so everyone else can sort of carry on with what they're up to. And so we thought, well, we should sort of put something outside the building which someone can man. And then we also um, sell cheese to Waitrose. And as you can imagine, Waitrose, well, we sell it to a particular weight. And because we're artisan, uh, all cheeses are made by hand and some are bigger and some are smaller. And what you don't want to do is make a big cheese and sell it for 150 grams when, in fact, it's 200 grams. You're giving 50 grams away for free. So with the cheeses, which were um, slightly overweight or slightly underweight, we thought, what should we do? Again, going back to the issue of wastage, what should we do um, with these guys? And then I'm the only one in the office who drinks coffee, um, and the coffee is really, really bad. And I said to my husband, I've got to get a really good coffee machine. And he said, you need this one. It's £1,100. I said, I can't possibly justify that in the office. And um, I thought, well, I could justify it if it's serving coffee to the public and we've got some other things going on. So all those three things lent themselves to establishing the cheese shed, which is a shipping container in um, a rickety old Dutch barn behind the creamery. And we put the cheeses, which were too big or too small, between two pieces of white bread. And we got a very good coffee machine and some very good coffee from Horsebox Coffee, another good local company. Mm -hmm. And um, we opened and we thought, well, each month we'll do something different. We'll do kimchi toasties in the first month and then we'll do ham hock. and We had a whole list of sort of outrageous and ambitious toasties. And we thought, you know what, we'll just start with a classic and just, you know, learn something about how to do this and some systems going to hospitality is a whole new um diversification for us and as on the day before we opened we were screwing in light bulbs and there were about four of us in the container and we said gosh how many toasties do you think we'll sell tomorrow i don't know 17 17 i think might sell 25 i don't know well my dad will come down and get a cup of coffee so that's one sale (laughs) and we thought we'd just do a soft launch we only put up one post actually maybe two on instagram and um i think we had about 170 on our first day and oh my. it turns out people really like people really like <laughs> melted cheese so um so it's been it's, a, it's been a roller coaster but, but a fun one and we've got now a fabulous team in charge of the cheese shed and we haven't got round to changing the classic um as it is so we're still um Nearly a year later, we still haven't managed to do a kimchi or a ham hock or any other version, and um, and it's been it's been absolutely fabulous.
0: It doesn't sound like and, you need uh, <laughs> to do another version.
2: <laughs> um, no, we're still just trying to come up for air. It's been yeah, it's been absolutely brilliant.
0: Well, I have to say. Um, I popped over, I think it was last week, and had a cheese toastie and, and popped a few photos on my own social media. And people's reaction was almost like they might not survive if they don't go over and try the toastie. Uh, I think people's affinity with melted cheese is very strong. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's great. I mean, it's absolutely delicious. Um, so like I say, hopefully we can taste another one soon. You mentioned kefir and I love that you're now selling kefir um, direct to the consumer and even have a kefir smoothie or or various kefir smoothies. I'm pretty sure I saw on the menu. I haven't tried one of those yet. I know fermented food products are known to be extremely healthy. Um, Having written a book on gut health myself, I know it's a really, really hot topic right now. And I know that, you know, having these fermented food products can link to improvements in mental health in physical health and heart health and many other aspects. So was the demand for fermented foods the reason for for producing and for selling kefir?
2: No, actually, we started just because um, Patrick I mentioned earlier had had always been interested in kefir. And then we have another wonderful cheesemaker called Sabrina and she um, is very interested in the microbiome. And we started it and actually our early kefir, even by my own admission, was quite challenging.
1: Mm. But
2: we now... Um, We now have something which is absolutely um, fabulous. And a lot of people find it challenging in its raw form. But as you say, in a smoothie, uh, you can augment it with all sorts of wonderful bits and pieces to help that immunity and everything else, as you mentioned. Um, But lacto-fermentation is what we do. And some, uh, some people say that cheese making is the farming of microbes. It is with... Our cheeses are absolutely bursting with life and that life is microbial mm. and it changes all the time over the course of cheese. So, um, so it was, it was a sort of, it's a natural thing for a cheesemaker to do. And we're now getting quite far down the rabbit hole of lactam fermentation with beneficial microbes. And we're actually hoping to start a, a wonderful collaboration with the University of Reading and a professor there who, was the man who coined the terms probiotic and prebiotic. And we're going to see what more we can do with lacto-fermentation and, and these peculiar benefits it brings. One of the reasons why um, milk lends itself so well as a substrate for all of these microbes is because the process of fermentation acidifies the milk and that enables it to pass through some of the acids and the pH levels in, in the early part of the alimentary canal. So there's a lot more coming, but I now can't kind of, um, if I go on holiday, I kind of miss, I I take it for granted how much probiotic parts there are to my daily life. We sell kombucha and live sodas and the kefir and the cheese and, and then I sort of go away and I don't have them to hand and I'm, can I start to miss them after about four or
0: five days it's interesting isn't it that it is a very hot topic as I mentioned and even a sort of has multi-generational appeal I know for example um, my 17 year old when I mentioned the kefir smoothies I mean she loves cheese don't get me wrong but when I mentioned the kefir smoothies of course that really appeals and I think that would be you know something that whilst the cheese will appeal to all and I think the kefir will appeal to all I think the fact is that you've got different things for different types of people which is wonderful Um, And like I say, appeals to multiple generations, which is great. Now, uh, we're going to take a brief break and I'd love to find out a little bit more about what happened to your business during the pandemic. It's a question I often ask people, um, particularly food companies who I am interviewing on this show. And I'd love to know what challenges it threw at you. We'll be back in just a moment.
1: Across the Thames Valley. One more time. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is River Radio. Well. Now for some pop music, try this.
0: Welcome back to this show, Let's Do Lunch, all about food and nutrition. My name's Jenny Tishy. I am a nutritionist and the author of several cookery books. And today I'm joined by Rose Grimond from Nettlebeg Creamery. It's just down the road in Oxfordshire and um, has made some fantastic cheeses, butter, kefir, cream. The list is almost endless, but it is, <laughs> there is an end to it. But I just want to ask Rose a little bit about what happened to your business during the pandemic. I know it probably threw some challenges at you.
2: Well, it did, but actually, I'm wondering whether most of the challenges were homeschooling. Um, that <laughs> aside, the um, it was um, it had some, yes, it definitely had some silver linings. On a sort of larger scale, I think that it encouraged a connection with um, with producers like ourselves. Maybe people had more time. Maybe people were avoiding town centres. Whatever happened, we found people kind come around. Going, God, I had no idea there was cheesemakers on our doorstep. Oh, I'd love to buy some milk, and I'd love to buy this, and 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 they're like, oh, and the, this is the line, that comes from here, and all of that moment to sort of put your head up and look around and see what's what is right here. I think was an opportunity that the pandemic afforded. It um, we. We, d- we had a few enterprises. We-, we hired a milk float, and we decided to do a, a milk run to the local village, um, actually to five of them, and to deliver milk to those who wanted it, to those who were really shielding and who were vulnerable. And um, I think that was appreciated. But it- I don't know whether you've ever been in a milk float, Jenny, but it- <laughs> <No>. somehow some- <laughs> it is just really fun. And poopling around the villages, um, delivering milk, going 15 miles an hour, um, and it was May and it was sunny. I don't know, I've sort of got a fond memory of that. Um, it's um, the independent food sector largely did quite well and had an increase in footfall, and they make up a large number of our customers. And so there was a sort of, you know, everyone talks about the blitz spirit, but there was a sort of kind of, there was a connecting, I think, between consumer and retailer and producer for the likes of us. Um, on the downside, we did have, um, because, as I mentioned earlier, you can't cheese make at home, so we were going to work, and then we did have um, some COVID, which uh, rippled through some of the um, staff, and that was that's always worrying, and that was, that was not fun, and luckily everyone came through, and it's fine. And we employ um, uh, some people who have some learning difficulties, and one of them was very vulnerable, and then we also employ... Uh, prisoners who are serving it um, in HMP Hunter Coon. and mercifully they were still able to come to work on daily release um, although at the moment the prison system is having a, what seems like a national lockdown so they can't come to work at the moment so ups and downs uh, but that we were all speculating, us and other cheesemakers makers and other people who who's do what we do, we were saying you know, is this all going to disappear once life gets back to normal and I don't think it has. I think people are only getting more and more interested in the provenance of their food and and local businesses and small businesses. And I think that legacy will remain. But I'm, I'm an optimist.
0: Yeah, No. absolutely. And I love the fact as well that you are in collaboration with other local businesses. So when you go to the cheese shed, you've got other um, food based products that you can buy. But a lot of those are from local farms and local producers, aren't they?
2: Yes, absolutely. We love to support um, other businesses like us. Um, I think I mentioned Horsebox Coffee, mm-hmm. and there is a wonderful baker in Henley who, um, well, I think she's a sort of patisserie chef. I don't know how she describes herself, and she makes the most delicious cakes and deliciousnessy things. Um, and we, yeah, we love working with um, all of those who are sort of in the same boat, and they often care about their produce in a way that is, can only make it better.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a a trend I have noticed. And certainly talking to some of the businesses that I've had the pleasure of speaking with and interviewing for the purpose of this um, podcast, I have noticed people have that need and desire to be much more connected to the producers of their food, to understand the story. And I know people talk about prominence a lot, and they talk about that increasing and people wanting to know. But I think Certainly post-pandemic, or if we can say we're post-pandemic, certainly now people are a lot more connected and hopefully it is a trend that will continue. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, Rose, is about the kind of, we call it like the green credentials. I mean, obviously um, the, the farm and where you get your milk from practice, regenerative farming. But I ask any business that comes on here sort of how you're reducing your environmental impact. Can you shed some light on, on what you're doing um, at the creamery?
2: Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about this. So the first things I can sort of trot off are that we heat our, hot water and therefore heating with a wood chip boiler that we have solar panels and we try and reuse as much as we can and that the whey goes into a digestate that can then be spread on fields. Um, but it's the little things. It's the packaging. It's mm. We get asked a lot about glass bottles because we sell milk in plastic bottles and obviously single-use plastic is not great and glass is good, except it's not because in fact the single-use plastic plastic of plastic milk bottles is the most widely recycled item on the planet and it can actually have further use quite easily whereas a glass bottle only really covers its initial carbon demand if it's been reused 22 times and most of them smashed by uh, about the 20th time and I don't know where to stand on it. I want to use glass and it's more beautiful and I can't bear single use. And yet, in the whole scheme of it, which one uses more carbon and which is better and worse. And I just don't know, I go round in circles and the same is true of coffee cups and whether they're compostable or not. But in fact, it doesn't really matter that they're compostable because there isn't anywhere where they can be composted. Mm. So it's, um, it's a minefield. And in fact, we asked a fabulous person to come and help us do an audit of, what we can improve and, and how to do it, and it's that's still ongoing. It's a, it matters a great deal, yeah. It does, but it's it, but it, but, but finding the right answer is not straightforward, yeah. And it's if a anyone's challenge. Got isn't any it? great ideas? Uh, we do give away our coffee gr- grounds, and those I know go to a lot of happy people's allotments, so there's another one,
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that's wonderful. I mean, anywhere that you can, um. You know, where, where, where something isn't going to waste is a wonderful thing, it's not a of output. Um, so, there have been some really exciting developments at Netflix Creamery, and certainly with the expansion of the product range, which uh, is beyond even my knowledge. I, I knew about the kefir and the butter and the cheeses, but I didn't know about the other products and even the potential development of other products, which is really exciting. So, watch this space. Um, you've had some, I mean, your social media is fantastic. You've had some uh, really exciting celebrity visitors. I'm a big Jeremy Irons fan, so I was very pleased to see him. Um, And of course, the wonderful cheese shed. So, what are your plans for the future? That's
2: a good question. We always have plans, and uh, some of them are outrageous. And I, I love somebody, outrageous plans. Well, I did not know what someone who just said every now and then says. Rose, don't you think we should just just make cheese and focus on that? Yes.
1: And she's absolutely
2: right. But um, yes, as I mentioned, I, we're really excited about this work. Hopefully, that we can do with the University of Reading on um, the microbiome. We're also looking at um, furthering what I think is an important part of the business, which is an education element. Working with schools and groups of young people. Um, bringing them to us and, and helping to make that connection of you know field to fork and we are we're going to be doing some more events over the course of the year um, and they can get quite silly in fact we have a Burns event tonight and um, I just hope everyone's we're not going to have too much mooning with the kilts I shouldn't have said that I um, bet <laughs> you've encouraged then, it now <laughs> I know that's what I'm um, and um and then there's um, the, the, the thing that we're just starting is to start growing some vegetables in the field in front of the greenery. And uh, we're working with a wonderful man called Olivier, and he knows more about vegetables than I could ever possibly learn in a lifetime. And so we hope to be both selling those and um, and using them. I think, um, I, think I might have met
0: Olivier. He's uh, a French chap. I think I might have met him at English yes. Farm several years ago. Um, that's quite possible. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, he definitely knows his stuff. Kept me entertained for about two hours with his knowledge. So
2: it's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, he's very impressive.
0: He is. Um, that is so interesting. I mean, particularly the uh, the microbiome work. Um, that you're going to be doing with uh, Reading University. I think that's certainly something, you know, from a nutritionist perspective, I'm very interested to follow. But also the field to fork, which is um, educational work, which is so, so important. You know, when we look at, we're talking about people being connected to the provenance of their food, but certainly there's another area that is not really being addressed. And that's certainly children that have, uh, many children that have no connection with where their food comes from and no idea that certain food is even growing and going back to that very first statement which i am going to um paraphrase i think it's the everything comes everything is plant-based um, you know at the very beginning of its journey any food is plant-based and i think that's a really important message to get across to children um, so if people want to find out more about the creamery where can they go uh
2: they can come visit us at the creamery that'd yeah. be nice um, <laughs> or else they can go to our website nettlebegcreamery.com or to any of our social media handles, which is Nettle Red Cheese. And what about,
0: you mentioned that you sell through Waitrose and you sell through independent retailers. You also sell direct. Are those the sort of three areas that people might find you if they're not based in this part of the world?
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, You can buy direct from us and we can um, send it by courier. Or um, we do sell nationwide through a a few companies and... uh, and yes, a, a lot of independent retailers. And then every now and then we speak to our wholesalers and they say, oh, by the way, we're selling you in Barbados or, oh, we just shipped some of your cheese to Dubai, which we never hear about until much further down the line so yeah we crop up in strange places
0: wow that's uh, that's really exciting isn't it to know that your cheese is reaching other parts of the world um so that, that's really that's really uh, helpful to people they can find you all on social media or you can visit the website or you can actually go and enjoy um at the cheese shed one of the fantastic and infamous cheese toasties um Brilliant. I think that's all for there. Right, on to the quickfire questions. Uh, so if you were to have your last meal on Earth, Rose, what would it be?
2: It would be beef stew.
0: <clears throat> beef stew. A
2: well-cooked beef stew, I think, is unbeatable.
0: And anything else with it? A starter? Dessert? Oh, just, cheese course? Just a <laughs> big
2: bowl of hot beef stew, maybe a little bit of cheese crumbled in it. Yeah. And a very good bit, a hunk of bread to, to scoop it all up.
0: I love that. Um,
2: who's your favourite chef? I can't. I can't. I was thinking about this. I just, I, don't, I just, don't, I kept changing my mind. I can't. Um, I have to tip my hat to Thomasina Myers, who mm. I think is doing some wonderful work, both with food and champagne food, especially organic food. Which is she's, she's fabulous.
0: Yeah, that's good. Any particular um, sort of area, blog, podcast or book that we could look for uh, that information, further Further information on what she's doing in that space? That you could recommend
2: um i think um there's a very good repository on the guardian website of okay. all of her stuff
0: brilliant that's really helpful thank you um which is your favorite
2: restaurant also impossible um <laughs> in cornwall there's a very good one called surfside in orkney there's one called the foverin um nearby i'm i'm very loyal to the crooked billet um uh, i, I like, I can't. I don't know. It's
0: too, it's too hard. What's too, yours? Oh, that's a really good question. I would probably say, well, I I love um, I love Italian, I love Mexican, I love Indian. But I would probably say it is a French one. So it's um, Absinthe in Enfleur. And it is absolutely... You feel very special when you go in there and yet you'll still find people, you know, all dressed up, bringing their dogs in or their children in. And um, I love that restaurant. So, yes, that would be mine. And I can't wait to get back
2: there. I'm going to
0: go there. Go to (laughs) Absanthe. Well, you might have some Absanthe and uh, the the whole evening goes swimmingly. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) uh, is there anywhere that you haven't eaten that you'd like to eat yet other than (laughs) Absanthe?
2: yes i mean all, all of them i haven't i feel like i've not been to a restaurant in, in in ages i mean i used to know them really well when i was selling from in london and sort of trotting around you know through into the kitchen with ups and lobster but um <laughs> i haven't been out in so long i'd like to go to hawks which people rave about
0: yes that'd be a great great place to go and Are your children foodies
2: uh, increasingly, it's it's wonderful watching their 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 palates change, and then they getting interested. in what are you doing here? And how does that work? It's that's really fun. So they enjoy I'm eating it. Try not to push it down their throats. Yes, they do. Yes, good. We they like to me. hear that.
0: <laughs> if you were to have a fantasy dinner party and you could invite four guests, who would you invite and why?
2: Ah, oh, four guests. I've got more than that. I've Go got on. <laughs> both, of my gra- both of my grandmothers who sadly are dead but I, now as an adult I'd like to know them as adults because I only knew them as a child and actually they were remarkable um, uh, Guy Singh Watson who's the founder of Riverford what he's done in a lifetime is extraordinary, uh, really really admirable mm. I wish there were more like him around mm. um, uh, my husband he's got to come and then I'd also please like Bob Mortimer and Dawn French they keep you
0: entertained. <laughs> Your grandmothers, what's the connection there? What would you like to know as an adult that you felt that you didn't get the full picture of as a child?
2: Well, so I never really knew how, uh, you know, but that their work and their attitudes and, their and you know, there's just a wisdom that mm. comes with age, surely, and I'd love to um, pick their brains and get some good tips on how to, how to eat, meet out the next, hopefully, few decades of my life yeah
0: and it's a reminder to us and our generation I think to try if we can find the time to write things down to log things somewhere for our own children and for their children too I think that's something that I've learned being this sort of mid-generation where we have to look both ways right now um, so anyway Rose Grimond it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you I've absolutely well I've learned so much so much more than uh, I thought I knew um, my brain has been expanded which is Always good. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to visiting the cheese shed and having a a cheese toastie. Do you have any final thoughts or words for our listeners?
2: Notice what's on the doorstep. You don't, it isn't necessarily better for you or better for the planet. Um, If it's, there's good stuff right here. You don't need to import cashew butter.
1: Mm. How
0: about that? Mm. That's it, isn't it? If we were to look at what was uh, locally available and seasonal, I know we go through this, what we call the hunger gap, but there's certainly a lot of produce that's grown right on our doorstep that we could certainly make great use of and We've talked today a little bit about your connection with a particular food and cookery programme, Ready Steady Cook, but the idea of using lots of bits and using things up, that's where we really should be at. Wonderful. And um, can you just remind our listeners again, Rose, of where they can find out more about you? Uh,
2: please do visit our website, uh, com, or any of our social media handles at nettlebed cheese um, or come and visit us. We love talking to people and... We can talk literally until the cows come home. Yeah,
0: you really can. And I have visited and found out more about your cheeses, which was wonderful. And your staff are very, very well informed. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, much appreciated. You take care. And I will be posting this uh, as a podcast so that you can listen to it once again on Apple, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying these Let's Do Lunch shows, then please do leave us a five star rating. It'd be wonderful to get your feedback. Everyone, take care. Have a great day.
1: Your blood like winter freezes just like ice And There's a cold and lonely light that shines from you You wind up like the wreck you hide behind that mask you use and Did you think the smoke will never win? Well look at me, I'm coming back again I got a taste of love in a simple way And if you need to know while I'm still standing You just fade away Don't you know I'm still standing Better than I Looking like a true survivor Feeling like a little kid Down the road, leaving me again The threats you made were meant to cut me down And if my love was just a circus You'd be a clown by Windsor. Windsor Ascot, Ascot. Maidenhead. Maidenhead Bracknell, Bracknell. Wokingham. Wokingham Henley, Henley. Reading Okay Ta-da.
2: The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley